I want to tell you about a vacation. About 20 years ago or so, uh, my wife Sandy and I took a vacation to Costa Rica. Anybody been to Costa Rica? Ah, too bad. Oh, well, good. A few of you have. Costa Rica. Now, we've been to a number of places in the world. Uh, lots of vacations, stuff, you know. But Costa Rica is the only place in the world I've ever been where at the end of our time there, I really did not want to go home. Because I like home. But Costa Rica was just different. It, it, was, it was awesome. Now, most of us take vacations in order to go and do stuff, do things together, right? And that was us too for a, a lot of our lives. I mean, when our kids were home, we loved to vacation in Red River, New Mexico, up in the mountains. And we'd go and do stuff with our kids. We'd ski or hike or fly fish. I would fly fish. I don't know what they were doing. Hiking and stuff like that. So a lot of times you do a vacation to go do stuff, right? Well, and that, that was true for Costa Rica as well. I mean, there was much to do in Costa Rica. I mean, we body surfed in the Pacific Ocean on a beach that was incredible. Uh, we ziplined through the rainforest in pouring rain. We whitewater rafted down a raging river. We hiked together. We did lots of stuff. There was lots to do. But the highlight of the trip for us was not something we did. It was something we saw. We booked two nights at Arnal Observatory Lodge in Arnal National Park in Costa Rica. And the main feature of the park is a volcano. Not a dead volcano, but a live, rumbling volcano. And when we got to our room at the lodge, it was a, a nice little hotel-like room, and the back wall was draped. And I opened those drapes, and it was all glass, and that's what we saw. It was incredible. Absolutely incredible. The lodge is about a mile from the volcano. So we were probably a little closer than that picture shows. And when we opened it, it just filled the whole picture window. And we stood there and gasped with delight and awe at the scene. It was incredible to gaze on a live, smoking, rumbling volcano. And a little scary. There's a time to do. And there's a time to gaze awestruck at something so amazing, so otherworldly, so shockingly beautiful that it takes your breath away. And the first three verses of Hebrews bids us come gaze upon the Son of God. There is nothing here to do, just gaze and be awestruck at His glory and power and might. Later, the author of Hebrews will give us some instruction, but first, pause, reflect, and with the eyes of our hearts, let us look upon the Son, who is the final, complete revelation of God, the writer of Hebrews fleshes out in great detail the meaning of the claim that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
So this is the first of a nine-week series that I've planned to preach from Hebrews. We won't cover the whole book, but a, a good portion of it. And then I may come back to it later in the year. We'll see. But in contrast to James which is filled with imperatives. I mean, that's why people love the book of James, which I preached through last fall. I mean, James is always saying, do this, don't do that, and here's the way to live out your faith, and you should be doing this, and don't do that, do this. People like that. People like just to come to God and say, just tell me what to do and I'll do it, and, and James does that. But Hebrews is quite a contrast with, with that. The author of Hebrews sets out to answer the essential theological questions that form the foundation of our faith that should move us to want to do, right? There is a time to do, and there is a time to be still, quiet, meditate, appreciate, and worship. Who is this Jesus, and what has he done on our behalf? That's what Hebrews is all about. The theme could be reflected in the use of one word, the word better. The Greek word is kreto, and it's found 11 times in this epistle called uh, Hebrews. An epistle simply means letter. Uh, And it means, this kreto, it means better or superior or nobler or more excellent or stronger. And the writer of Hebrews is going to come back over and over to this. And he's, he's going to tell us things like Christ offers a better revelation of God, a better priesthood, a better covenant, a better sacrifice, a better power. So the underlying question Hebrews addresses, not one that he literally writes anywhere, but I think underneath the whole thing is this question that all Christians must face at one time or another, creeps up at various times in our lives of trying to follow Christ, and it's this, is following Christ truly a better way? Not everybody thinks so. Why do we think so? So that leads us to Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and that's our text for today, just these three verses. We're going to stop there. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Is the God of the Old Testament the same God of the New Testament? Now, somebody asked me that just recently, just a few months ago. Some see the God of the Old Testament as a rather stern, law-giving, wrathful being, quick to banish Adam and Eve from the garden after their one mistake, sending the flood to wipe out all the wicked of the world in the days of Noah, inflicting his wrath on his chosen people, the Israelites, countless times, But of course, there's more than that. That's not an accurate understanding of the God of the Old Testament who is the creator, who redeems his fallen people again and again and again and determines that through them he's going to redeem the entire world through his own shocking sacrifice. The New Testament book that best helps us understand this relationship between Old Testament and New Testament 
It's Hebrews. There is a respect for the prophets, for the law of Moses, for the Old Testament priesthood in Hebrews without compromising the supremacy of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Now, Hebrews, honestly, we don't know who the author is. Some think it was Paul. Some think it was Clement. Some think it was Barnabas. Some think it was uh, Priscilla and Aquila. There's all kinds of speculation, but the bottom line is we really don't know. What we do know is that very early on, the, the, the early church accepted this book as a part of the canon, a part of the inspired Word of God. So we know that. We also don't know who the first recipients were, but there's lots of clues in this book. And all of the clues point to something that we can't confirm for sure, but it seems like he's writing to uh, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. He's writing things like, in many and various ways, God has spoken to our forefathers. Who's he talking to there? And some even think it was a community of Jewish believers who had been involved in the priesthood of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, again, can't demonstrate that, although we do know from the book of Acts that some of the priesthood became followers of Christ. And the author here, he acknowledges the good work of, of the Old Testament prophets he is affirming that the law given to Israel through Moses, well, it was valid, and it served God's purpose. And we remember in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I, I'll never forget the baptism of High Trowrig. We've had many, many memorable baptisms in this church. And, and they're all glorious, but there was something very special about High's baptism. You see, High was an elderly Jewish man who began to come to this church years ago, and he passed away a few years ago. And he was an elderly Jewish man when he started to come here, and he came to this church because his daughter was a believer and follower of Christ and, and, and her family, so he had grandkids here, his daughter was here. So he came to be with them mostly, but he wasn't a believer in, in, in Christ. And, you know, we welcomed him, of, of course. And Hi uh, and I began to have some rather spirited conversations about the gospel when he came to me and volunteered to lead our congregation through a Seder service, uh, which he did uh, twice. And a Seder service is what we think Jesus was doing at that Last Supper with his, with his disciples, right? And so High uh, came and, and he, he showed us all the symbolism of that. I mean, it was fascinating. He did a great job. And so um, in our conversations, I challenged that High. Have you ever read the Gospel of Matthew? Nope. Well, I I encourage you to read it. Why don't you read it? Because I I think it's the Gospel written with mostly Jewish believers in mind, believers in Christ, that is. And so we said, okay. So he he read it. And then I I met with him. We scheduled time to meet when he finished Matthew. We sat down. I'll never forget. He had a spiral notebook full of questions about Matthew. And so the conversation went on. In fact, it went on for years. And, and, and we got to be friends, and, and I would tease him occasionally and say, Hi, someday, brother, I'm going to baptize you. And he'd laugh, and I'd laugh, and he'd 
keep coming to church, and, and it was fun. One of the biggest obstacles to coming to faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, was the sense that for him to embrace Christ would mean denying his Jewish heritage. Really struggle with that. And there's reasons for that, legitimate reasons. I mean, the church has a long history that isn't always so good. And the way the church has treated Jewish communities and so there was that, that was difficult. That was, that was quite an obstacle for him. And, and, and I reminded him, hi, you know, Jesus was Jewish. Those 12 disciples, Jewish guys. Paul, that great missionary to the Gentiles who writes, I don't know, half our New Testament. Jewish guy. Pharisee, meaning expert in the law of Moses. And none of them were required to reject their Jewish heritage in order to embrace Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God and their Lord. High came around to that understanding. And at that point, he was very, very close to professing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as his Lord, as his Savior, which he eventually did. And I had the incredible privilege of baptizing him. Now, Jesus, Jesus himself never denigrates or erases or condemns the Old Testament law and prophets. All were legitimate ways through which God spoke and revealed his will. The point is that in Jesus Christ, God went beyond the law and the prophets, providing a fuller, final what we might call better revelation of God. That Old Testament law anticipates, looks forward to the one and only one who would fulfill that law and prophets perfectly, completely in his life. The Old Testament prophets called for people to trust in God, to live as he instructed while looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise, the one who would come and fulfill all the prophecies and all of the promises and be much more than another messenger from God. Mark begins his gospel with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just puts it right up there up front. The gospel depends on the identity and completed mission of Jesus. There's no gospel without this Jesus. No one else qualifies for the job of Savior and Lord. All the words of the prophets are eclipsed by the word and the message of the Son of God. The divinity of Jesus, we must never compromise. Hebrews reinforces the central truth of the gospel and bids us come and gaze upon the Son and all His glory and what it means. And He gives us Seven statements, or we might call seven facts, about the Son of God. And as we gaze, these are the things, these facts, these statements about who Jesus is should come to our minds. Because we can't see him with our literal, physical eyes, but with the eyes of our heart. And we do that by meditating on these seven things. 
Let's review them very quickly. Number one, God appointed the Son heir of all things. Now, that's why we read Psalm 2 today, uh, earlier. Because verse 8 is what the author is probably thinking and drawing on when he writes this idea that the inheritance uh, of the inheritance of Christ. Because Psalm 2.8 says, Ask me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So by describing Christ as the heir of all things, he intends to convey to us the idea that the Lord Jesus will inherit not only this earth, but everything, the entire universe, everything that goes with it. And by the way, the Son came to restore us all. God intends for all of us to be sons and daughters, His sons and daughters, and as the Apostle Paul puts it, co-heirs with Christ. Number two, God made the universe through the Son. The Greek word translated universe is ionos, which primarily means ages. But its meaning is broader, bigger, and encompasses the whole created universe, all of space, all of time. This phrase affirms the eternal existence of Jesus and brings to mind how John begins his gospel. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. It brings that all together. Number three, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now, that Greek word translated radiance, apalgasma, is, is the word. And it can mean one of two things. It can mean... Uh, an original light source, a light that shines out of a source. It also is used sometimes to mean a light that is reflected. Jesus Christ is not a reflection. He's the source of the light that God shines into the world. We, the followers of Christ, we're supposed to be, we're called to be reflections of that light. His light is perfect. Our light is Eh, not so much. But in our lives, people should be able to get a glimpse of the light that is Christ. Now, somebody brought this up to me just a week ago. He told me that her favorite part of Christmas Eve was the lighting of those candles. And the symbolism for her was very powerful. As she reminded me that I take my little candle and then we have the, the Advent candles here and the center candle is the, the big uh, uh, Advent candle that is the Christ candle we call it and I light my small little candle from the Christ candle and then I pass that light on and the symbolism he is the light and we all are to reflect it in our own hearts number four the sun is the exact representation of God's being a couple of important words here I mean I hate to keep throwing these Greek words up to you but it's helpful to understand what what, what the author has in mind when he he uses the word translated exact representation. And uh, it is the Greek word character or character, which sounds familiar because it's the Greek word derived, uh, the English word character. Now to the Greek-speaking reader, it it would bring to mind a picture, an engraved 
stamp, like on a coin. Now the idea for the, the coin, for the image on the, on, the, on the coin, is that it is to, as closely as possible, represent the image of the emperor, the king. Jesus, the Son of God, is the exact representation, the very essence of God. God's being, which is the word hypostasis, meaning to be or being, substance, reality, essential nature, the express image, the exact representation or expression of God's essence or being, that is God himself. Whatever the divine essence is, whatever God is, Jesus is the perfect expression of God. You see, all through here, the writer of Hebrews is affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. I read a book years ago by a a Jewish rabbi, not a believer in Christ, but one who enjoys uh, conversation with Christian pastors and and so forth. Jacob Neusner was his name. And it was a book about, uh, I, I still have it, and it was a book on why he would not follow Christ if he'd been with Christ in the, in the first century. And it was fascinating to, to, to read. And he only worked from the Gospel of Matthew because the Gospel of Matthew seems pretty clearly to be uh, for Jewish followers of Christ in, in, in the first century. And you, you know what it comes down to for Jacob Neusner? He could accept a lot of the teachings of Christ. He took issue with something here or there. But the bottom line for Jacob Neusner was coming to a place of professing, as Christians do, must do, that this Jesus of Nazareth is actually the Son of God, and by that we mean God, that he's divine. He just could not go there. I respect the man. I respect his faith. I respect the kindness with which he disagrees seems to be missing in some of these conversations these days. Number five, the Son sustains all things by His powerful Word. Colossians 1.17 comes to mind. He, speaking of Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Just as God created everything out of nothing with His Word, let there be light. God holds together, sustains all things by His powerful Word in the Son. And in these first five statements, the author of Hebrew is is bidding us to come and look upon the Son, remember who He is, reminding us that this Jesus of Nazareth, yes, He's fully human, but He's also the true, fully divine Son of God with all the glory and power of God. Then we get to number six. The Son has made purification of sins. And with that phrase, the author terms, turns from describing the person of the Son to what He has done on our behalf. That He came to be, essentially, the ultimate high priest. And Hebrews has a lot more to say about, about that. That's one of the great themes of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is our high priest above all other high priests. And so we're humbled by the grace given us through His provision to remove our sin debt before God. And He's the only one who could do that. The only one who could accomplish that on our behalf. 
As Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And then finally we get to number seven. The son sat down at the right hand of God. Now that's an important statement. See, the verb sat down denotes, communicates a solemn, formal act. The assumption of a position of dignity and authority. And Jesus, you might remember, laid claim to that destiny at his trial before the chief priest. In Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, 69, he said, But from now on, the Son of Man... That's how he liked to refer to himself. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. He's claiming divinity. The Son is more than God's last best choice for a messenger. The Son does more than deliver the message from God. He is God. He does more than bring a message of purification for sins. He becomes the means of that purification. That's why we have a cross on the wall. It was through that cross that he delivered that purification. He sat down at the right hand of majesty, communicating his work for all mankind is done. On the cross, he declared, it is finished. His ascension into heaven to take his rightful place, seated at the right hand of God, is further confirmation. His work is done, complete. This is our great hope for eternal life. There is only one Jesus, no prophet, no other being in heaven or earth is even close. So now we get to the last question. What do we do with this? What do we do with this theological truth? I gave you a clue at the very beginning. Three ways to respond to the glorified Son, I would suggest. And the first is reverence. We respond with reverence. We repent, perhaps, of the flippant disrespect that sometimes creeps into our souls, our minds, our hearts, and the way we worship. Before we kiss the cheek of our beloved brother, Savior, we kiss his feet as the majesty, God Almighty. Before clapping and raising hands and jubilant praise, which I really love to do, there are times when we need to just fall on our knees in humble awe. Before we enjoy fellowship with Him at His table, we gaze upon the Son of God with wonder, fear. I like the way Raymond Brown, a New Testament scholar, writes about this passage. He says... We need a vision of Christ with these immense cosmic dimensions. A Christ who transcends our noblest thoughts about Him and all our best experience of Him. The opening sentences of the letter are designed to bring us to our knees. Only then can we hope to stand firmly on our feet. The first way we respond, reverence. Second, gratitude. We must never tire of giving thanks to the Son who provided purification for sin. Our sin. Every act of service in His name 
must spring from a heart filled with gratitude for what He has already done and already given us. Every time we give an offering, it springs from gratitude. And before we ask Him for anything, and by the way, yes, He invites our requests. He wants us to come and bring those requests. But we might want to stop and give thanks first and remember He has already given all of Himself to us. Let us give thanks for what we've already received. Number three, we proclaim Him. We remember, recite, live out Romans 1.16. What is Romans 1.16? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. That's what Paul wrote. And so we identify ourselves with the Son, the Son of God, and we find our true identity in Him as baptized believers, followers. And we're not ashamed to claim Him publicly, to recommend Him to all who will hear our testimony. And not all will hear. Jesus Christ is not our private little tribal God. He's the Creator, the Sustainer, the Redeemer of all. So we point all people, wherever they come from, to the Son, who is the radiance of God's glory. N.T. Wright, in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, which is a book about the cross and the meaning of the cross, and in it he writes this. He captures it very well. Worship was and is a matter of gazing with delight, gratitude, and love at the Creator God and expressing His praise in wise, articulate speech. Those who do this are formed by this activity to become the generous, humble stewards through whom God's creative and sustaining love is let loose into the world. That's what we're supposed to be. So, we respond with reverence and gratitude and we claim Him and proclaim Him. And we're going to sing to Him. But before we do, let's pray together. And I want to invite you to do something we don't do around here probably often enough. We're going to go to our knees together, if you want to. I mean, nobody's looking around, the room's kind of dark, so... Don't worry. If you don't want to go to your knees, you don't have to. If physically it's not something you can do, then that's okay. It's all right. You know, a lot of churches have kneeling benches. You know, that's a great thing to have for a church. We don't do that very well. But today, we are. So I want to lead us in prayer, and I want to invite you to join me on your knees, if you can. Going to our knees is a way of expressing with our body our humble faith in Christ who is the radiance of God. It is a way to demonstrate humility before Him. Lord God Almighty and everlasting Father, we give thanks to You 
for your Son, who is the radiance of your glory, the exact being who you are. We give thanks to you, Lord God, that Jesus, your Son, fully divine, set aside being God and all the privilege therein in order to come and teach us how to serve humbly and to give his life even for us. We give thanks to you, Lord God, that though you are God, you invite us to be in relationship with you, to receive your love and your presence, your forgiveness and your direction for our lives. Lord God Almighty, I pray you'll forgive us for those times we've been less than reverent. Fill us with a reverence and awe, a fear of you that is healthy and good. Fill us, Lord, with gratitude for what you have already done on our behalf. Nothing else you could do can possibly compare. And Lord God, I pray that you will fill us with such reverence, with such gratitude, that we'd be eager to be faithful witnesses proclaiming the Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the blessing. May the vision of the Son and all His glory fill you with wonder, gratitude, and a desire to proclaim Him. Amen.